Have you ever wondered what the world would be like if there was no conflict, no contradictions, no butting of heads, no differing opinions? Sounds great, right? Sounds peaceful. Yeah. Well, I propose that such a world would really be the epitome of chaos. And here's why. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. You are listening to the Average Apologetics Podcast. I'm Corey, your Average Apologist. I hope you've had a great week so far in spite of the madness that's going on around the country and around the world. Just remember that no matter what era you live in, there will be chaos. That much is a guarantee. So long as there is humanity, there will be violence, there will be division, there will be chaos. That sounds pretty optimistic, right? right? Does that sound optimistic? Well, it, it really is, if you think about it. Because every situation is its kind of like a coin. And every coin has two sides, after all. Heads or tails. Good. Bad. And you have to take the bad with the good, right? Well, the violence and division and utter chaos that goes on pretty much everywhere in the world, to some extent, is not the only characteristic of a world populated by sinful human beings. Not the only characteristic of life. There just happens to be some of the characteristics of life. Some of the characteristics of what it means to be human. Besides, there's the grace of God, which abounds above all, in spite of humanity's shortcomings. And there's also creativity and imagination and beauty. Now, you may be thinking, gee, well, I thought the imaginations of the heart of human beings were evil continually, just like God saw in the days of Noah, and you'd be correct. But again, that doesn't diminish the beauty that still resides there either. It doesn't diminish the good that is accompanied by the bad. Remember, coins have two sides. The beauty around us should never be ignored simply because there's something ugly right beside it. You could acknowledge the beauty without having to embrace something that's not, contrary to the faulty logic of some people in today's society. It would have you acknowledge something as beauty where there is no beauty at all. And they would want you to ignore the true beauty that is there simply because it doesn't match up with their preferred worldview. I've talked before about patchwork worldviews, when people pull in all sorts of ideas from various sources, picking and choosing the aspects they like, creating a, a custom tailored worldview that incorporates all the little bits and pieces from various philosophies, world religions. And they think they've created a masterpiece, but all they've really done is amass this enormous amalgamation of contradiction. This amalgamation of contradiction and lies. They're deceiving themselves into thinking that if they wish for something strong enough, you know, like calling the color red, blue, long enough, then it will magically become true. But that's not how truth works. It's not how beauty works. I recall seeing recently a couple of different organizations that had elevated uh, what they call transgender women, and that's men who identify as women 
had elevated these individuals to the status of objects of beauty. And that's, you've seen, I've seen it in beauty pageants, magazines, the whole nine yards. This whole LGBTQAIP plus 42 alphabet mafia is, is just one gargantuan lie being told amongst millions of people who can't see the forest for the trees. They can't recognize who and what they actually are as creatures sculpted by the hand of God wonderfully and fearfully made in his image. Rather, they cling to this faulty logic that says that their wishes and desires can transform objective reality into something that it's not. That simply isn't possible because that would be a contradiction against the nature of God and the reflection of God's nature that exists all throughout his created work. No, real beauty is objectively true. And sure, there's subjective aspects, subjective, what's considered subjective beauty, you know, personal preferences on what people find to be beautiful and appealing and lovely. So, you know, if we're talking about human beings, some people find that a specific eye color is more dominantly beautiful than others, or a specific hair color to be preferable, or a specific shade of skin pigmentation and, and don't get me started on that because that insanity stems from people trying to shape their entire worldviews around the percentage of active melanin in the skin identifying themselves trying to develop their entire identity based on the color of their skin and, and again that's that's sheer madness it's sheer madness because it is taking one granular aspect of an individual and ignoring the greater truth that we are all human beings, we are all part of this grand human race created in God's image. But you already know where I stand on that. I believe you already know where Scripture stands on that, but I'm sure we'll revisit it again sometime in the near future. That is, of course, a common issue that keeps cropping up in society. But it stems, just like the ill-perceived notions of beauty and flawed perceptions of the truth, from the sin nature of humanity passed down from the first man, Adam. That nature that drives us away from God and into the clutches of iniquity. But amidst all of this insanity that's going on around us, I'm sure that some people have wondered from time to time what the world would be like if there was no division. If there was no chaos, can you imagine a world without violence? A world that's truly united. That sounds peaceful, right? That sounds like the solution we should all strive toward, right? Except, with humanity alone, there can be no peace. Only through Jesus Christ is there peace. And Jesus said explicitly that he didn't come to bring peace to the earth not during his first advent, that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. You see, there can't be peace through human means, because the matters that truly drive wedges between us, the serious divisions, they're not really physical, or even psychological, or geographical, they're ideological, and they're spiritual. They are the matters that relate to what is true and what is reality. Now, we've talked about truth. We've talked about reality, how these are grounded in the nature of God. 
Now let's talk about the sword. The sword of division that Jesus himself embodies in this world. Now I know some of you may be thinking, well, Jesus is all about love and meekness. After all, God is love, right? So why would he say that he came to bring a sword? Why would he say that? And why would he say, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. Well, I'll tell you why Jesus said that. I'll give you two easy answers, and if you look at the world around you, you ought to be able to see what I mean. Just look at the chaos that has been taking place between the BLM riots, the, the antagonism directed toward police, directed toward people based on their ethnicity. It's, again, not about race, because there's only one human race. I know we, I keep bringing it up. But it's kind of important for us to understand that. You look at all of this chaos, all of this division, all of this strife. Think about that and consider this. First, Jesus is the truth. The world at large, the secular world, secular humanity, is vehemently set against truth. The masses in Western culture, what, what, what is it that they're preaching right now? What is it that the, the secular humanist, the secular world preaches? They're preaching my truth as compared to the truth. Too many people, too many people in this world are obsessed with validating their own beliefs rather than objectively analyzing what they believe. Analyzing what they believe to see if it holds water, to see if it's true. And nine times out of ten, it doesn't. Now, maybe that's not an exact ratio, just a turn of phrase, but it's probably more generous than the reality of the situation. Just think, if, if only 10% of what people popularly believed were actually true, I'd wager that the chaos we see every day surrounding situations like the, the Derek Chauvin trial or the recent shooting of Dante Wright or the political animosity between neighbors that turns to the point of violence, if only 10% of what people's beliefs of what people held as their, their firmly rooted beliefs were actually grounded in the truth, then I'd wager that those things, those outbursts of chaos, would be diminished. Rather than the daily slog that we currently endure. No, too many people do not want the truth. It's not just that they can't handle the truth. Little movie reference there. I digress. It's not that they can't handle it. It's that they don't want the truth. Since Jesus is the truth and people don't want the truth, then, well, logically, that means that people don't want Jesus. Of course, that shouldn't surprise us. They didn't want him when he was here on earth during the first advent. They certainly don't want him now, if you're talking about the non-believing masses, right? Why would Jesus bring peace to a people who set themselves at odds in direct animosity toward him? Would that be loving? 
Really? Think about this. God loves us enough to give us the opportunity to love him while we're here on this earth. Jesus loves us enough to have endured becoming like us, taking on the flesh, taking on the, the flesh of a human being, taking on the full weight of what it means to be human, and taking on all of our temptations, all of the, the physical weaknesses, taking on all of that without sin, and taking on the weight of sin. Again, without transgressing, but taking on the full weight, the full cost, the wages of sin on our behalves so that we might receive atonement. Now that, my friends, is love. Greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did for us. That's what God did for us. No, Jesus is the truth, but people reject the truth. Those standing in opposition to the truth cannot receive true peace because they stand in opposition to God. They stand in opposition to love. When you think about it in those terms, of course they will spiral into chaos, into violence. Second, not only can the unbelieving masses never experience true peace outside of having a personal relationship with Jesus, but they also cannot be left to their own devices. And this is where we have utterly failed in our task. I'm not downplaying those vigilant few, those vigilant few champions in the cause of Christ. I'm not diminishing the accomplishments of the evangelists and pastors and apologists and teachers and spiritual leaders who have demonstrated a passion for the truth, who have led as many souls as possible to the Lord. I'm simply stating a fact that the majority of we average Christian people have failed in our duty to uphold the truth to the absolute bitter end. Because we've grown complacent. Let's face it, none of us wants a fight. Right? None of us wants to contradict anyone. Not about things that really matter. I mean, sure, we'll break into factions over sports teams, over politics, but when it comes to taking a stand for the truth, for the things that actually matter, in the face of an opposing horde of enemies, because, let's be honest here, humanity is only united in one situation, and one situation alone. They are united against Jesus. Let me say that again. Humanity, raw, pure, unfiltered, unregenerated, unbelieving humanity is only united, truly united, in one direction in one goal, in one focus, in one cause, and that is opposing the truth, which is Jesus Christ. That is a horde of an enemy, a massive opposing force. And again, speaking very candidly here, most of us, we would rather sidle up against the wall, pretend not to be noticed than to have to deal with the contradiction. 
You see, a world without contradiction, a world without division. Contrary to what you might think, such a world can only exist in one of two ways. The first is the end as God has revealed it, which comes after the final judgment of God, when the wheat and the chaff have been fully separated, after hell and the grave have given up their dead and the very last soul is judged, judged according to the books laid out before them, the book of their lives and the books the books of their lives and, and the Lamb's book of life. Those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will then be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. That is one end without any further division. And that is the ending. That is the true ending. The ending that will come, the one that cannot be averted. And quite frankly, that should be part of the driving force behind the preaching of the gospel, so that souls might hear and believe and enjoy paradise in the presence of God. But as I said, this world without division, this imaginary world, can only exist in two feasible forms. One is a legitimate form. Right? One is a legitimate form. And that's the true form, the true end, as God has revealed it. The second form is one that cannot actually exist because it has a dependency, a dependency that is impossible because that dependency would negate the very fabric of reality. I, for one, am grateful to God that such a world cannot exist because as long as God lives... As long as Christ is risen, then this second form of a world without division cannot exist because the only form of peace, and I use that term here loosely, amongst sinful humanity is in, as I already mentioned, opposition to God. So the only way that a world could exist with a united humanity, a united human race, is in the complete absence of God that would require the non-existence of God. And more to the point at hand here, more to the point at hand, it would be a unity only in the condemnation that such a reality, lacking the grace and love and omnipotence of such an almighty God, that ultimately that reality would blink out of existence. Because without the uncaused first cause, the universe could never have come into existence in the first place. Everything in creation has a cause. And since everything has a cause, there must have been a first cause. The first cause must have been set in motion by something that does not have a cause. It must have been set into motion by something that was not created. The uncreated creator. The uncaused first cause. So, obviously, this world that we're talking about here is just semantics. It's just a hypothetical, which is why I say that I'm grateful to God that such a world cannot exist. Because God exists, and there are those of us here on this earth who believe him and who take him at his word. But just think about it, just imagine it. To exist in harmony as one unified human race still wouldn't be true peace. Because it wouldn't eliminate all chaos and division and violence and harm. It would only eliminate the division 
between man and God. Even if all the world, even if all the world, every human being on the planet became an atheist, if every soul had faith only in himself, well, for one, that wouldn't have any legitimate bearing on the existence or nature of God, because the creation is dependent upon the Creator and not the other way around. But it would also just leave us all where we started, broken, fallen creatures, broken, fallen sinners with no way to redeem ourselves, and naturally inclined to follow the downward spiral into chaos, which would lead us to what? More division, more violence, more hatred. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't call that true unity, and I certainly don't call that true peace. People would still fight. People would still break out into factions. People would still kill and rape and steal. Humanity, following its natural instincts, cannot find peace, not without God. And since Jesus is the truth, and sinful humanity is naturally set against the truth, and there are those of us here who believe Jesus, who have faith in Jesus, who have faith in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then Jesus must be a sword. He must be set to divide one from another, to drive a wedge, even amidst families, because some will hear and believe while others remain in unbelief. So let me ask you, if you have an interest in apologetics or in evangelism, spiritual leadership, or, or maybe just in Bible studies and growing closer to the true risen Savior. What does all of this indicate about your responsibility toward upholding and brandishing the light of the truth in the midst of darkness? Leave no stone unturned. That's what I think. That's my take on this. You can take that with a grain of salt. But I look to the teachings of the Apostle Paul, who taught to leave no occasion for those who would subvert those who are not yet rooted in the faith. Leave no opportunity for false doctrines, biblical misrepresentations, and false claims of what is true being touted among or near the body of Christ and those over whom you may hold some degree of sway in their ideology. The people over whom you have some degree of responsibility in either leading them to Jesus or guiding them in some manner of ethics, morals, helping to cultivate their worldview. Do you let the lies that are propagated in the world be taught to them as though, it was, as though they were the truth? That would be a betrayal of your responsibility. And that is why each and every one of us need to uphold the truth wherever possible. The Apostle Paul told the church at Ephesus to take up the whole armor of God, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking the shield of faith to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and the helm of salvation and to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That is the depiction 
of the perfect and fully equipped, completely prepared spiritual soldier in the Lord's army. And the battle that we face, it's not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness. This is the preparation that has been given to each and every one of us. And each and every one of us has been called to uphold this duty. To take on the armor. To wield the truth. And to stand firm. We need to take a stand for the truth. Uphold the truth to counter the false narratives, the lies that are told, that are taught, that are hammered into the minds of young individuals, to those who are, are not yet fully rooted in the faith, to those whose ideologies, whose worldviews are incomplete. We need to stand for the truth, because the truth is the only thing that will set them free. And that's all the time we have for today. I hope you'll check out the website if you haven't already. I have quite a bit more material to add, but I do have several articles already on the site. If you haven't checked them out, check it out, averageapologetics.com. You can also follow me on Parlor. You can subscribe to my channel on YouTube and on Rumble. I've mentioned it several times, and I'll keep mentioning it. I won't be able to make any videos for a little while yet, but eventually I will get back to putting out some video content in addition to the podcast and uh, eventually more written materials on the website. And of course, if you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to give it high ratings. Share it with your friends, your family, maybe with your enemies too. Think of it as a way to, I don't know, passively nettle your ideological enemies, but in a loving way. As always, stay strong, keep the faith, and seek the truth in all things. Until next time, God bless.